Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of the TMI Entrepreneurship Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rocker Priori, and my co host for today. Hi, I'm Joshua White. As you likely know, if you had listened to last month's episode of the TMI Entrepreneurship Podcast, this season is all about international dynamics. So we are very thankful to have with us here today, Dr. Anna Jenkins, who's a senior lecturer at the School of Business at University of Queensland in Australia. For those of you who have interest in entrepreneurial failure, Anna's name has probably popped up more times than you can count uh, since this has been a long-term research area of interest to her, which she'll talk a little bit about today. But one fun fact about her is she's actually moved a lot during her career in terms of different countries and continents. So we thought she'd be really good to have on here today to talk about why she chose to move internationally, what those challenges were for her, and advice she has for PhD students who might want to pursue this in their own careers. So welcome, Anna. We're excited to have you here today. So we start every episode with an icebreaker question. Uh, This season's icebreaker question is, if you could only live in one place in the world for the rest of your life, what would be that one place? Where I am right now. What a good answer. Why? Um, I guess this kind of touches really upon the theme of the podcast. When I was finishing my PhD, my husband said, pick somewhere where you're happy for the next 20 years. So that was kind of like the decision criteria from, okay, if I'm going to apply for jobs and I'm really going to take this sort of this seriously, if that's my, my criteria, I have to pick somewhere where I'll be happy for the next 20 years. So I picked Brisbane. How did you get to this point of your career? Gosh, I mean, I guess it's how far back you want to go is I think going the whole whole way back I remember in high school when I was about 15 uh, I worked out I wanted a career where I could wear jeans to work Um, I don't quite know why that was really important but I think I never really liked dressing up a lot so I think that was one kind of criteria going through high schools I knew I didn't want to have to dress up every day I think in Australia you wear the formal school uniform so I'm sure that probably had something to do with it Um, And I also knew I really loved learning stuff. I hated doing homework. I hated study, but I liked learning new things. So I kind of also worked out that I needed something where it felt like my job wasn't doing assignments, um, where I felt like I could be learning, but not having to regurgitate what I'd learned. I'm not sure how well academia fits that that bill, but that was kind of the starting point. Um, And it's always new in the back of my mind that maybe I could do, you know, go to university, study further. It was always that kind of like, this could be an option. Um, and I met my husband at the end of my third year of studies, um, and he was out for eight weeks in Australia and was supposed to fly back to Sweden just before Christmas. Um, and then he, well, we sort of decided he'd actually stay for a year while I finished honours. So all the Swedes flew back that he came out with. There were 14 of them. 13 flew back. He stayed behind. Um, I finished my honours year, and then I skipped my graduation and moved to Stockholm. Flights were cheaper in early December than late December. So I was like, I don't really need to actually formally graduate. They send you the diploma anyway. Um, So we moved to Stockholm. And that's where I started working in a pub, nannying. um, And I also started looking at different PhD programs um, once we got there. And then my husband got his dream job in Jönköping in southern Sweden, working for Saab Trading Systems. He had a three-month contract we moved down from Stockholm, that three-month contract turned into 
a longer term position. Um, and that's when I started working as a research assistant in Yernsherping and then went across to the PhD program, thanks to Alex McKelvey and Yuan Vickland. Um, and that's kind of where I sort of got in to academia. Uh, and that's when during the program, I had my first two kids whilst doing my PhD. And so that's when I finished. That's when that, where do you really want to live for the next 20 years? It wasn't just where I wanted to live, but it was where we wanted our kids to go to school and grow up. Um, and so that then became the move to Australia. I grew up in Adelaide. My husband said no to Adelaide. Sydney and Melbourne are super expensive. So I was like, they're too expensive to live in. Perth's on the other side of Australia. So we kind of by default said, okay, let's pick Brisbane. Um, and I was really lucky. I'd met people at UQ. They had roles out. Um, and then so I sort of kicked off my career here at UQ and I've just been, I guess, sort of working through the motions of trying to build my career here. How did you decide on the PhD once you got to Sweden? Was it just working in this research assistant position? Um, well, I'd done economics as my undergrad. And while I loved economics and I'd done lots of the maths and the stats, it kind of got further and further away from the individual and more and more kind of too theoretical, too much maths, too much stats. And I said, okay, I love economics and I still love research in economics, but I don't actually want to do the kind of the stats anymore and do that kind of research. It's just really weird that I love, I love reading papers in economics. I love all the outcome of research in economics, but I just don't want to do it myself. So I knew that I didn't want to go into economics in the PhD program, but I also wanted to do something that had the individual more as the unit of analysis or that was sort of closer to sort of less secondary data, um, sort of less maths. And that's kind of when sort of the option to go with then into business a sort of management business administration kind of can, okay, hang on, that means you're actually studying, well, you're studying firms, you're studying individuals within firms. And then of course, Jan Scherping being so strong in entrepreneurship was like, hang on, when you go down to that level, the firm is the individual. And so suddenly then I could see I could actually study at an individual level analysis, um, something that I'd then be really interested in. So it kind of came through that process of where can I still sort of study uh, and do a PhD, but where can I find a fit which matches what I'm really interested in? Um, and when I started, I mean, coming from economics, when you do maths and stats, the fact that you could collect your own data seemed really novel. Um, now, post-PhD, the fact that I do most of my interview stuff is like observations and interviews. I mean, that's crazy at the start. I didn't even realise that was an option when you sort of come through um, sort of with economics as my undergrad. I didn't even realise case studies was kind of possible as a research method. So it's been a huge shift from, I guess, what I did in honours and thinking what I could do in economics to come across and uh, sort of do a PhD with a focus in entrepreneurship. That's all fantastic. As someone who stayed close for my PhD, let me ask you, um, for students that want to go international or maybe do their PhD outside of their home country, you know, what are some things that they should think about before taking on a PhD in a place that's, um, you know, not native for them? I mean, I think I was, I was lucky that I had a, I think it was nearly four years in Sweden before I started the PhD in Sweden. So I got to understand the Swedish culture and context. And I was just so lucky that I landed in a place where the PhD programs are just brilliant. Um, so that's where I didn't do my homework um, and I was really lucky. So I think the part I think that is becomes quite critical is getting an understanding of what does the actual PhD program involve and what, what's it like? Because I mean, the system you guys go through in the US is so different to Australia. And then what's in Sweden is so different 
again or sort of across Europe. So I think it's really getting an understanding of what the PhD program is like, how long it is, what skills you're going to learn, um, and then how competitive you are on the job market when you finish. I think what's fantastic about Sweden is we had sort of nearly a six-year program, um, which is amazing because you get the teaching experience, you do coursework, and whilst the sort of dedicated thesis time is still only sort of two years, it's two years spread out across nearly six years of time for you to develop as a scholar during that time. Um, and often you end up spending more than sort of two years of that six years on the project. So you get such a huge advantage just being able to develop research skills that I think in shorter programs, you just don't have that same opportunity simply because they're condensed. So I think really getting an understanding of what the program is like, how long it is, um, and then also, of course, what the place is like to live. Um, I think often we forget about the importance of actually being able to have a great life sort of outside of the PhD program. While it's all kind of, sort of all consuming, you need to have good friends outside of the program, a really nice PhD cohort. It makes such a difference to go through a cohort um, with PhD students who are supportive and nice. So just getting a sense, I think, also what the culture is like within the department and the role PhD students play, I think also has a huge impact on your own training um, how quickly you get immersed into academic life. That's where in, in Jönköping, it's amazing as a PhD student, you have your own office, you're part of faculty, you're heavily involved in teaching. So you get such an insight into what it's like to be a faculty member before you are one. Um, so I think just getting that understanding of yeah, how, all of those dynamics of the PhD program is really important. And I was just lucky. To add on to that a little bit, I mean, I have some friends here in the U.S. who have talked about after they're done with their program in the U.S., moving to Europe for either a postdoc or a job. Is this something that you think PhD students should be considering when they first start their program? Because I know, like you said, the programs are different and just kind of keeping in mind of some of the obstacles that U.S. students might have to think about if they're moving overseas or your students moving to the US or to Australia, like the dynamics are different. So things that they should keep in mind of how early they have to start thinking about this and what they should be considering. Okay, I think even moving back to my home country, it was like I had it was still a steep learning curve and I'm from Australia because I mean, I'd spent 12 years in Sweden. So I felt like I spent my adult life growing up in Sweden, not in Australia. Um, I kind of thought about right from the get-go what I wanted to do post-PhD. I loved Jönköping. It's brilliant. I had my kids there. I loved living there, but I also knew I didn't want to live there the rest of my life. Um, so in that sense, I was really thinking about making sure, you know, what I was going to do post-PhD was something I thought about fairly early on. Um, I remember my supervisor, Johan, he said, treat every um, presentation that you do like a job talk. Um, which is the best piece of advice because it meant you went to every conference, every presentation you did, you took really seriously because whilst you're thinking about where you might like to go, people are also thinking about who do they want to recruit on the job market. So I think that really helped thinking about, I need to take this process really seriously. And I started thinking, not where did I want to go right from the get-go, but I wanted to make sure I had options uh, open at the end. So I think it's important to think about what you want to do post because you're putting so much effort into the process um, and it's such a huge commitment that being able to think about it's not just the end goal of getting the PhD but where do I want my career to take me next um, I think it's really I think it's it's important to think about that as you as you're sort of working through the PhD 
Um, and I think that's the, the best thing about academia is it enables you to be mobile. Um, so I didn't really have, you know, I had the question of find somewhere you want to live for 20 years. So I knew that I wasn't going to go, oh, I want to go do a postdoc here for two years. It's a really nice place to live. And then we'll move again. I had my husband's career to take into account. He didn't want to have to move around and rebuild his career multiple times. So I didn't really think so much about this flexibility of, of getting to move somewhere short term for a postdoc or something like that. But I think it's a great chance to live somewhere else, work with new people, work with collaborators you don't necessarily have, you wouldn't be able to work with otherwise or have that close collaboration you wouldn't be able to have with otherwise. So I think it's more working out what you want to do and taking advantage of the fact that the doors kind of can become wide open when you finish. I like it. You had not only the challenge of moving somewhere that's not your home country for your PhD, but you also had the challenge of moving again post-PhD. What do you think was the biggest challenge for both? Moving to do this PhD in a country that you hadn't been in before and then leaving that country that you built your adult life in to start your career somewhere else too? I mean, I think moving back was much, was harder simply because I had kids to settle into school, a husband who had to rebuild his career. Suddenly things get sort of serious. When I was in Sweden, I was in, I was in my 20s. Everything was fun. Um, we were living in like a tiny studio apartment. It was sort of nothing, nothing felt difficult. Um, and everything sort of felt like it was this really fun learning journey. Um, so I think transitioning in, it was this amazing opportunity. I had a fantastic cohort. So it was this kind of really exciting experience. I think coming back to Australia, suddenly, you know, you're financially responsible for the family. You got to get kids. I mean, the kids were fantastic. They settled into school straight away, but it's still, you've got to sort of set up a whole new life. Uh, and even though Australia was my home country, I hadn't been in the systems for 12 years and I hadn't really been an adult really in Australia. So there was still setting up all of the, you know, fast the health insurance, all those kind of steps, all that paperwork. And it wasn't just for myself, it was for the family. And I think those things take, they take more time than you, even though you know it's going to take a lot of time, it does take time. So I think the transition moving post, I think is tougher than moving in. And that's more due to life situation from going from, uh, we hadn't yet got married when I started my PhD, yeah, living in a studio apartment to, you know, relocating a family. So it was more for you personal implications that were the most challenging, not just career implications, like we might be first to assume. Yeah, I think the because your data sets, um, the projects you're working on, your collaborators, I mean, just because you move countries, you don't stop working with the people you were working with when you move to a new institution, you find people who you'd like to work with. So I think that part kind of, for me, was still relatively smooth because most of our data sets we can take we can take with us the projects don't stop so it's more of the getting the personal life or the family life I think sort of was much more the challenging part than the professional life because we kind of know our role in academia and because in Sweden we were part of faculty or treated it was amazing they sort of treated you like you're part of faculty so there wasn't that transition of going really feel like going from this sort of PhD student to a faculty member um, because in Sweden you were sort of, you went to department meetings um, and you sort of sat with uh, the other members of faculty. So it, I didn't really experience that transition as being as difficult. I think in Sweden as a PhD student, I probably said more things in department meetings that I ever would have said as a lecturer here <laughs> in Australia. So um, yeah, I didn't find the professional part as difficult, but certainly 
yeah, relocating family across the world is, is definitely challenging. Something that was very surprising for me, titles are even different. Like lecture in Australia is very different from lecture here. Was that a challenge when you moved to try and understand just terminology, nomenclature of any of this stuff, or was it pretty straightforward and simple? I think because I'd done my undergrad here. So for me, it was basically lecturer, senior lecturer. We just have four four steps, lecturer, senior lecturer, associate professor, full professor, and tenure and title are decoupled, um, essentially. Um, and so because I grew up in the, or went to undergrad in that system, it wasn't something new, new to me. And I think the assistant associate full professor is so much more simple. So that was, that was okay. But I think uh, because lecturer is used for a sort of a tenured position, an untenured position, and someone who'll come in and teach, you know, a sessional, a sessional class. I think sometimes uh, the title gets used for multiple different, multiple different roles. I think whereas assistant professor, you know, it's just used if you're assistant professor. But I think, yeah, I was used to the, I was used to the language. Yeah, um, I didn't know that, so I'm glad you asked that. So if I'm uh, representative of the people listening. Um, well, Anna, one of the things that I was really curious about in looking at your background and some of the research that you published is, um, and some of the stuff that you're doing, you know, has to do with failure and, and things that are um, really uh, built on trust. And so I was curious, like, you know, working across cultures, um, have what are some opportunities and challenges that you have in working with entrepreneurs, maybe understanding their background experiences, building trust with them, those sorts of things? Um, an awesome question, because this was one, I think it was less on the failure stuff. Um, that was, I did that as a quantitative study. And so I think their trust was either built straight away or it wasn't uh, in terms of getting respondents uh, to participate. And what was interesting there is I think some people was, they sort of said, this is the first time anyone's actually asked me how I felt. Um, and so I was really surprised at how willing people were to participate in a survey or as a telephone survey. A male questionnaire just based off the fact that most people hadn't even asked them what their experience was like and they're willing to share. So that really surprised me um, going into the failure research. And now I spend a lot of time studying startups sort of over time. Um, it's more we've done a large uh, one-year ethnographic study of a essentially was a, a startup that sort of circular economy startup that sort of through COVID uh, transformed their business model. We watched them grow from three to 30 on the ground. And then some startups we've been following, I think only two are still up and running, but for about six years. And going into each of these situations, I had the, how do I build trust? Um, we want to be able to follow these startups uh, for as long as possible to be able to collect lots of really regular uh, data, need to build this trust quickly. And I was, again, really surprised at how willing uh, people were to give us access, to let us in and to talk to us. And I think it's sort of entrepreneurs are quite lonely. It's a very lonely road. So in terms of building that trust, so much of it was showing up um, on a regular basis. And once they saw you more than once, they went, OK, these guys are actually serious. And so, again, I think the trust building happened far, far more quickly and far more smoothly um, than I sort of anticipated. I went always went into these meetings really nervous. Am I going to get access? Are they going to want to talk to us? Are they going to let us sort of observe them, interview their employees, sort of be part of the organization? Um, and each time with entrepreneurs, 
uh, it was a very quick, yes, you're keen, you're willing to capture my story, um, happy to share it. Of course, outside of that with government accelerators, those types of places, it's a different story. That took much more, I think that's a much uh, sort of longer process of sort of building the trust or also just kind of negotiating the access. But I was surprised with entrepreneurs that they're actually really willing to share their story. So yeah, in both cases, uh, I've been surprised at uh, at the entrepreneur sort of level, how willing they are to engage. So I want to add on to this a little bit, because I think it's an interesting question. You also, I know, came from a predominantly quantitative PhD program, and now you do predominantly qualitative. What was that switch like? I mean, you've made these switches, not just internationally location-based, but big switches in just methodologies through your career too. Um, I think, so as I touched on earlier, coming from the economics background and doing the stats, I didn't really even realize case studies was an option. And of course, going to somewhere like Yearn Chirping, where there was fantastic people at Quant um, and also all these really fantastic case study, qualitative researchers, I was just, I would sit sometimes in seminars just going, okay, cool, you can watch people. And I, was, and I still didn't fully understand the method um, and what they were getting out of this process, but I sort of sat there with half the department did full-on qualitative research. So it was a fantastic way to go, to kind of learn from a distance. And after doing the PhD and doing everything in quant, I did some qualitative interviews with entrepreneurs who had failed. And it was just amazing after spending so much time reading all the theory, doing all the analysis with data, and then to suddenly hear people's stories. And they would sort of share their stories, two, three-hour interviews of just listening to the whole journey. And it just put so much colour to what I'd been reading and analysing in data to actually then hear the story unfold and to see all the connections in the narratives that we were listening to. It was just so, so much richer and more exciting to be able to say, I can see so much more of what's happened. I'm getting to hear the full story. So it's not just a, yes, they were really upset, but there was so much more to understand why, or they weren't. You could capture their story um, just in this sort of three-hour interview, just get so much more insight to what that journey was like than sort of sitting there analyzing all the data. So I think for me, it was because I'd spent so long doing the con and trying to understand what was going on. I kind of then went into these interviews with um, so lots of things that still had been connected, but suddenly it was like I had, you know, a lead pencil drawing and now it was full of color um, listening to these different people's stories. And that just got me hooked to want to actually understand more about what was going on, talk to more people, and really then begin to see so many of the patterns in their stories. Um, and it was through seeing the different patterns across um, you know, different entrepreneurs' narratives that you begin to really go, okay, now I feel like I can see a better picture. Um, so I had that happened before I left uh, Sweden. So I began to kind of get this first taste of sort of the richness of listening to people's sort of stories, or this in case it was their failure stories. And I don't think I would have appreciated the richness of their stories if I hadn't spent so much time sort of trying to study failure, um, you know, reading up on the theories around it and sort of analysing the quant data I'd collected. I don't think I would have appreciated what case studies could then do from kind of, you know, bringing colour um, and richness to what I'd kind of been studying. And so when I got to Australia, I knew I wanted to study much more of the entrepreneurship process. I felt like I was 
trying to say I had a PhD in entrepreneurship, but I've been studying so much failure that I'd get to the classroom and be like, I can tell you so much about failure, but not enough about sort of the entrepreneurship or the startup process. So I knew I really wanted to get a better understanding of that. Um, and I just happened to be recruited at the same time as a now a colleague who I've been collaborating with for, I guess it's probably six years, um, who was really strong on case study ethnographic research. So that was a really great way to say, this is what I'm really interested in capturing and understanding you know more about this method than I do. Um, so that's where it was both in through collaboration that I then kind of, I guess, upskilled to actually understand what do I do now? I've collected all of this data. What's the best way to analyze it and, and how to write it up? So I think it's a really slow process um, writing up all the qualitative stuff, but it's a really, um, I really enjoyed the transition. Okay, last question for you. Knowing what you know now, what is one thing you wish you had known when you first started your doctoral program? It's a difficult question because it is such a it's such a learning journey, both from like how to do research, how to write it up, and also how to be an academic. Because I kind of try to always not have any regrets or kind of look back. I always look forward, not backwards. So it's hard to think about. I think life is so much easier to live that way if you always look forward and enjoy the moment than kind of look backwards and kind of think, I wish I'd done this or I wish I'd known that. So it's not something that I do a lot naturally. Um, but I think the part is, one, to kind of enjoy the journey. Everyone always says the best time is when you're a PhD student. I think it's where it's the highest uncertainty, but it's also the most uh, enjoyable from a kind of like a personal kind of development experience learning part. So that kind of piece of advice that everyone says, um, I know it's a bit cliche and everyone says it, that's that's for sure. It's probably also more to enjoy the process a bit more, not be so stressed the whole time. I think I came in, it's so much uncertainty. You don't know if you're going to get the data. You don't know if you're going to find results. You don't know if you're actually going to be able to write them up. Um, that I think people are, whilst reviewers can be tough, I think the process is not as, it's not as scary as I thought it would be. So I guess it's to enjoy the journey more. No, I think this has been great. And um, you do have a lot of diverse experiences and I think that people will really enjoy hearing about it. So um, thank you. Awesome. I think it's awesome you guys are doing this in terms like just creating these sort of resources and stuff, especially on an international market. Thank you. Thanks, guys. This has been cool. So a big thank you again to Anna for being here with us today. Her insights on moving internationally throughout her career have always been something that I thought was interesting and intriguing and a topic that was worthy of discussion for a lot of people in this field, especially since the Academy is a majority U.S. dominated group. And it creates some obstacles for students living across the world to understand the differences in their own countries and continents relative to what they hear on a lot of these podcasts and episodes. So we're really thankful to have her here with a differing perspective. We also want to thank all of you for listening. If you have any suggestions or questions for future episodes, please feel free to reach out to our email address, tmientpod at gmail.com. And Andrew, Josh, and I look forward to reading your suggestions and hearing from you. And until next time. Thank you.